Hi, this is Raghu Marcus and Ramdas here and now. Before I launch into a, my usual description and edification of some of the uh, most important uh, points of this talk from Ramdas that's coming up, it's from 1994. Amazing talk from Chapman College in Southern California at a psychedelic symposium. Uh, and I'll, I'll give you a couple of highlights. But I just want to do a quickie, a quick, quick, hey, everybody, thank you for the support, but we really do need some more support for the Be Here Now Network. I think you know all the uh, podcasters and teachers and thought leaders by now that are on the network that, of course, include Ram Das and what I do at Mind Rolling and Krishna Das, Jack, Sharon, Joseph, Lama, Suryadas. So not to go through a list that's growing. And by the way, don't miss Melanie Moser's new podcast, Shakti Hour, which is a wonderful new addition to our family. So I'm quickly going to do this. If you can, please do go up and, and just do a $9 recurring donation. That's going to go a long way to help support everything that we're doing not just the podcast but those are of course super important the app that we put out the heart mind app the videos that we're producing and and putting out there the live events that we're going to be that are coming up that we're in process with the life and balance course which is uh, two years in the making it's been a lot of work and a lot of people involved so if you can do that or just do a one-time donation whatever works for you uh, well appreciated. The other way, of course, is the Amazon link, which is on BeHereNowNetwork.com. And just copy and paste it in, and into your bookmark menu so that whenever you buy anything from Amazon, you quickly just link to that uh, bookmark, that Amazon, Amazon bookmark, which will get us a few percent of whatever you buy and... Uh, it's the most convenient, easy way, and uh, productive for everybody in terms of support of Be Here Now Network. And I always come up with uh, a couple of uh, recommendations on, on for Amazon. Of course, you can get anything, and everybody knows that I'm a constant buyer of supplements on on Amazon. Uh, but I love books, and there's two books I want to recommend. I haven't read them. But I found out about them, and I want to share them, and we can maybe talk about it later on down the line. But one is Lex Hickson, who was on WBAI for many years. He passed, oh, I guess about 20 years ago. And he, uh, th this book is called Conversations in the Spirit, and I, he must have transcribed these interviews that he did. And you've got Ram Dass, of course, and then Alan Watts, Kalu Rinpoche, Swami Muktananda. I'd love to hear that one. Uh, so that's uh, uh, a fascinating book that I'm going to pick up. And then the other one that I'm going to recommend is by a, a, a Tibetan monk. He's French. Called, uh, his name is Mathieu Ricard. And it's called Altruism, The Power of Compassion to Change. And that would seem to be, to me, something extraordinarily important for us all to share and to... Uh, to read this book in, in these times which are so very, very critical 
and uh, with all of us going through the enormous amount of changes that uh, have been uh, initiated since the beginning of the year with the change in the administration. Need I say any more? We do need to cultivate compassion to change ourselves. Uh, so those are a couple of books. As I say, just get up there and be here now network and just copy and paste into your bookmark uh, menu our Amazon link. Okay, so this talk uh, is uh, Live Awake. It's from, uh, as I said, Chapman College, 1994. I think the way Ram Dass talks about it, it's kind of a uh, a very uh, conservative institution that was hosting a, a psychedelic symposium. So now for everybody out there, this is a really great talk that is central to Ramdas's psychedelic experience starting in 1961 with psilocybin that Tim gave him, Tim, Tim Leary, and carried all the way through his experience with Maharaji and uh, Neem Karoli Baba and his experiences as he kept using uh, psychedelics for various reasons over time and uh, some of how that affected him and how he sees it affecting uh, the culture uh, in in general. Um, it's He says it guided the course of his life. Uh, but his major realization, of course, in the earliest days was as long as the high represented a polarity. He said, I love to get high because it it eradicated the us and the them. But is but that polarity would still exist because when you get high, that means there's a low on the other end of that, and uh, to him that meant he wasn't free. Um, what else did I want to highlight? He of course he talks about ending up working with uh, with dying people, um, and uh, the way in which that took him to the what he calls the edge of awakening which is a similar experience, of course, with psychedelics. Um, and he says, psychedelic, if used in the right setting, is a brilliant way to start inner work. And, of course, we were told directly from Maharaji, when we asked him about psychedelics, which he had taken a couple of different times w with Ramdas, and, of course, nothing happened, but he said this was great for beginners, uh, good for beginners. It allowed you to come and have what he called darshan of Christ or uh, darshan of the one. If if Christ is not a good analogy for you, you can use any any, any kind of uh, spiritual figure. It allows you to come into darshan with Christ for a few hours but then you have to leave. And uh, he said, ultimately best to uh, feed people. <laughs> Boy. Um, so, what else? Uh, falling into love. Uh, when he's, he talks about being with dying people, falling into love allows the mind to be fresh moment to moment. It allows people to be who they are now. Uh, and ultimately, uh, he talks about cultivating two planes of consciousness. And, and this is a common theme throughout many, many, many of his talks. Uh, 
where uh, the the difficulty is seeing the suffering around us and feeling like, oh my God, how could this possibly be on one hand and what can we do about it? And it's where you can hold space, where you see how poignant it all is and and to be in a place through major practice and of course psychedelics have do help with that where you see it is all unfolding lawfully but as a human with a human heart it hurts as he says it hurts like hell and you do what you can to change it and how do you cultivate those two planes of consciousness simultaneously is a lot about what practice is about what our purpose in life is about. Uh, so uh, I always appreciate when Ramdas brings that up because that's a, a, a certainly is it not a central thing with what is going on today and how we're dealing with our reactivity and our polarization and 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 some of the uh, in social injustices that are going on. Um, so. Again, this is a key talk from Ramdas around his evolvement uh, through psychedelics. And uh, so here it is Live Awake, Ramdas, here and now. Hi. thought that I would come to Chapman College in Orange County <laughs> for this. <laughs> My mind just can't grok it. I can't get it all together. The climate must have changed when I wasn't looking. Boy, if this climate existed back in the 60s, Harvard could really be swinging today. <laughs> huh. You know, this audience in particular, I can say to you, there are so many levels on which we could share. You know, we could just sit here silently for about a half hour and uh, probably have the essence of the wisdom. Because obviously, um, well, it's obvious to me, I don't really know a hell of a lot more about all this than you do. And those of you that have heard my lectures know that I use my first name, Ram, as an acronym for Rent-A-Mouth. <laughs> and basically, I just think of myself as a, a mouth that speaks what we are trying to figure out and understand. And uh, Because when I say something that's about as wise as I get, I look out and, and a lot of people are going like that. And I think, how do they know? And if they know, why am I up here saying it? I particularly like speaking to very conservative groups where I'm introduced with everything except psychedelics. <laughs> you know, he was at Harvard and then he did research on consciousness and went to India and I think, what happened? Something's missing, you know? And I, 
I get up and I say the most significant single event of my life happened on March 6, 1961 when Tim Leary gave me psilocybin. And I can feel that the lips get very tight. And I say I've taken it hundreds of times since then, LSD and all of the mishpacha. And uh, so you must assume that I must, that anybody that's done that must be psychotic. But I would point out that you paid to come and hear me. <laughs> it's like what goes around comes around. That when I when I was a professor at Harvard, I was a good guy. Then I was fired from Harvard for turning on people. And then I was a bad guy. And then I became a yogi, and I was a crazy guy. And then slowly, I've done service work all these years, and I have foundations, and now I'm a good guy again. And you can just realize, see the your running through a minefield of the perceptions of other people. But it boils down to what you feel inside yourself. All the, uh, Houston Smith said, um, he said, it's clear that, I think I've got it written down, he said, um, LSD produces the re a religious experience, but it's less evident that it produces a religious life. And I've been examining that, and I realize that, of course, it's less evident because you don't have any criteria for measuring that very simply. But I think I could say quite honestly that what happened to me in 1961 was so, whatever it was, I am still growing into it now, that it has guided the course of my life. That it, it cut through at such a profound level my ability to keep people as them. And though I've tried, because this culture is very good at keeping everybody as them, so that you're almost totally alienated, whatever it was that happened to me then keeps undercutting that ability to distance myself from other people in my mind without realizing that I'm doing a mind trip on myself. Because the inner validity of the experience of us was so profound. And us, then the next step out on the next plane of consciousness is one. That there's only one awareness, one awareness manifesting through all these different consciousnesses. And then over the years, as I enter into that one, there's no longer a one, because there's no longer a two. Now, as 
I've played with these planes of consciousness for the last 30 years, many, many times I saw myself trying to stand somewhere in the whole process, like getting high. I mean, I really love to get high. And for many years I got high as often as I could. And I don't think it was until probably the middle 70s, and I started psychedelics in 61, that I began to see that as long as high represented a polarity from low or down, I was still stuck in pushing something away. And that if I were going to be free, and that was the shift, the significant next shift that happened to me, was the recognition that I didn't want to just get high where I was always off balance for fear I'd come down. I wanted to be free. And I recognized that free meant that I couldn't be standing anywhere. Or conversely, in the language you and I can understand, I must be standing everywhere. So at that point, I saw an interesting thing, that no longer did I just want to get high, I wanted to be free, and the most powerful vehicle for my getting free was figuring out what brought me down, since my natural state was high also. That is what caught me in the physical, psychological plane. So I did about a 180-degree turn Instead of always trying to get into la-la land, into vast oneness, into bliss, into rapture, I started to dive down into the stuff that would catch me. Because as I worked with my mind through meditation and all these different games, I began to hear uh, Buddha's statement that the cause of suffering is the clinging of mind. That the way awareness clings to something through aversion or attraction. And I wanted to free my awareness from identification. Now it's easy to do that in a cave. You got nothing that brings you down. But try living in the city. Try living in the city with your family. Try living in the city with your family and having a job. Try living in a city with your family having a job in the United States. <laughs> I mean, I can keep going. I mean, you like this one? Try that one. So you get fiercer and fiercer. It's much easier to stay high in a village in India, economics and all, than it is in orange. Well, I don't know about orange. Considering this, I, don't, I really don't know about orange. <laughs> hmm. So the question for me 
was what to go towards. And I saw that of all the things that would get me, like money, power, sex, um, whatever, I stopped there because that, that covers enough. Death is a good one. See, I could see that death was such a no-no in our culture that people were so freaked about death and that somehow because of that psilocybin and all the rest of the LSD, there was something that happened in me. I didn't have that same fear and denial and all the business about death. Partly I picked up in India through my guru and through my training all the ideas about reincarnation, but there was no question that awareness was not an identity with the physical being. And I had been a Harvard professor in which there was no question but that I, awareness was part, was a, an identity with the brain. So I started to just uh, kind of randomly start to hang out with dying people. Because it was the thing that brought me closest to the edge of the mystery where almost without exception everybody in our culture has an aversive identification. Pushing it away. And um, Ralph and Tim and mainly them, I was just, my name was used, but um, did the psychedelic experience, which was um, a translation of the Tibetan Book of the Dead as a manual for having a psychedelic experience, for a death-rebirth experience, because the parallels were obvious. So I realized that what, just like you say, lest ye be born again, you have to die before you've been born again. And I saw that my process was dying to who I thought I was. Who I thought I was must die for who I am to be. Who I am could include who I thought I was, but it couldn't, my, who I thought I was couldn't exclude everything else. So I worked with death, and I've worked with that now for years and years. I feel like a Charles Adams cartoon. I get excited when I'm going to be with somebody dying. Because it's a place where most of the defenses and the will start to dissolve, and there's like this space in which if the person isn't surrounded by people that are freaking themselves about death, there are these openings of consciousness that are just breathtaking. And the person, it's as if you watch a, a, a baby chick being born, you watch the shell break. It, it's just brilliant. It's the closest I get to truth with another human being is being with somebody as they die. Because there's no way to hide, there's no need to hide. The only person that would be hiding would be me. It's a situation that demands no bullshit. You've just got to be there and be there in truth. And if you're frightened, say, I'm frightened. 
And I'd say that for the past 15 years, what I have been practicing doing, and this is, this is a line Paul can use, I'm sure, is loving people to death. Falling into love with them. Being with them without definition of boundary. Extricating my awareness from the identification with me as a separate entity, as a helper, as a do-gooder, as kind Ramdas helping this poor person. Cutting through poor persons, cutting through until it's just two beings. You here, I'm here. What's happening today? Well, I'm dying. Wow, that's interesting. I'm dying too. It's just a longer-term game. What's it like dying? Well, I'll tell you, it's scary. And I, really... And it's as if we make contact with that in us which has nothing to do with death. Awareness neither comes nor goes. It was neither born nor it dies. Neither here nor there. So, when you're working with what brings you down, and you do it through mindfulness practice, all kinds of techniques of doing this. There is a toxicity that builds up. It gets to you after a while. This toxic fumes, so to speak, from, from the stuff you work with all the time. So every two years or so, I've taken LSD or psilocybin or mushrooms or something for a couple of motives, partly I'm sure to remain, keep my dues, my membership in the club. <laughs> and partly because I am a research person also, and, and I'm very curious because since I understand the, the way in which set is a, such a powerful variable along with setting and determining what kind of psychedelic experience you have, after two years, I've gone through a lot of changes, and my set or my launching pad is a different place, and I want to see what else I have to learn. And while it's difficult in a paranoid society to find a non-paranoid setting, so sometimes I'm in the Polynesian Islands or somewhere as my laboratory setting, And uh, what those experiences have been like often is a reminder once again of what I forgot. A reminder of the way I got stuck yet again. Because here I am doing all this stuff with like working with homeless, working in the Guatemalan highlands with people whose all their relatives have been murdered working with the blind in Nepal and India. And I'm not a good guy. I'm just doing that because it keeps me close to the edge of that stuff. I'm working on myself. I'm not doing that out of a uh, narcissistic, me-generation mentality either. I understand that if I try to help you and I'm busy being somebody trying to help you, I'm like Typhoid Mary. What I am giving you is forcing you into being somebody being helped. But between helper and helped, here we are behind it. But my mind is an environment that's trapping your consciousness. 
And so in a funny way, even as I help you, I'm creating suffering in you. I'm isolating you. So I begin to see very more and more clearly that I have to work on myself to become more spacious in order to be available to you to free you to do what you need to do so that my actions with you, whatever they happen to be, whether I'm holding you as you die or, or having an administrative discussion with you or buying gas from you or whatever, that my consciousness is not creating an environment that, that catches you, that catches you in having to be somebody. You see it particularly in dying. Like my dad, he got to be 88 and my stepmother had died and we'd been through all that together. And he got very quiet inside. And he just smiled a lot. And my father was not that kind of a person. He was an actor, an achiever, an upwardly mobile person that was always, well, Rich, what will we do today? We were always hammering something, lopsided, as I recall. <laughs> we had to do something all the time. And here we were now, just hanging out, holding hands, looking at the sunset, and he had this kind of shit-eating grin on his face all the time. And we'd wash him and worship him and oil him, and he never said anything. He'd just smile all the time. So my brother came over, who had a hard time with my father. And he went in and said, hi, Dad, how are you doing? And my father didn't say anything, just smiled. And my brother went out and said, bastard still won't speak to me. And then my aunt, who loved him passionately, came in and said, Oh, George, how are you? And he just smiled at her. And she says, What's happened to you? Where have you gone? What have they done to you? He was happy. I was happy. They were both miserable. And they were miserable because he wasn't who he used to be, who wasn't even that nice a guy. And it's interesting to allow your mind to be fresh moment to moment to moment to moment to moment. So you give a person a chance to be who they are now, not who you've got them pegged as who they ought to be. I was, uh, this fellow would come to all my lectures up in the Bay Area, and he was, he was uh, in a wheelchair, but he just wasn't in a wheelchair. He was back in the wheelchair like this, and he would drool a lot, and his legs were spread out, and he had an attendant with him all the time, and he was choking in the lectures often. So I went over to say hello to him after the lecture, and, and I met Kelly. And I started to visit with Kelly and hang out with him. Kelly could only speak because you could hold his finger over an alphabet board, and he could do letter by letter. He had been 11 years old, and he had been hit in the side of the head by a in a, in a fight at a baseball game. And the hospital misdiagnosed it. And he ended up like this. He'd now, when I first knew him, he was in his late 20s. He'd been through college. Been through college. Needed a full-time attendant 24 hours a day. Extraordinary guy. It took me six months of visiting him every...
It took me six months um, of visiting him every couple of weeks before I could be with that being without getting reactive to the physical trip his body was going through this life. And the minute I did that, I kept finding him in there deeper and deeper and deeper. But his symbolic value was so powerful that it took me, and I've really been training myself a hell of a long time to get through it. I mean, because, and then we could meet behind it, and then he could say, I'm having a hell of a time with my anger and my horniness in here, you know, because I'm in this body that doesn't do this stuff. And we talked from in there until pretty soon, even though he was speaking through the alphabet board, I never even noticed it anymore. It was just a form of communication. We were just hanging out together. Now you can see who in the society has symbolic value that's so powerful that you never can get through it. Like, because I'm a Jewish boy from Boston, upwardly mobile, money has always been a thing with me. My father always loved rich, important men. So if I'm in a room with five people and one of them's rich, I can see God in four people and a rich person. <clears throat> so in the same way I hang around dying people, I hang around rich people. They're suffering too. And it's extraordinary to keep working to get through my own projective mind. So what I'm seeing as I'm talking to you is the way in which the whole process <clears throat> of coming from 61 to 94 is a process of slowly loosening the hold of awareness the way it clings, either through aversion or attraction, to stuff till my awareness is just present. And it's not like I just rest in awareness and I'm not in form. The dance is nowhere to stand. You are in form and you're not in form simultaneously. First, it's sequential. You get high, you come down. You get high, you come down. Till pretty soon, high and down are all here. And I go in and out of this. I get trapped, but I've got all these devices like the beads to keep me constantly hey, where are you standing now? What are you doing standing there? And I take the psychedelics, and generally they teach me something. I've noticed they're teaching me <clears throat> that they seem less and less relevant to me in terms of my own inner work. They're still profound. They are still beautiful. Some of them, some of them are horrible. I get caught, but mostly, and that's useful, although hard on my body. But I'm noticing that the whole process of taking a psychedelic is less and less of the significant thing that's going to happen to me this year. It's a checking in to see if I got anything more to learn. And I always do, but I begin to see that what I'm doing is what I got to be doing anyway, and what's the rush? I think I was caught in the myth that we got into in the 60s that we were all going to be enlightened almost immediately. We all awakened, but we didn't get enlightened. So I've said before many times, Tim Leary and I had this graph on the wall of how soon everybody would get enlightened. 
It involved putting LSD in the water system, but other than that, it was not a major, major involvement. It was just obvious. And I'll tell you, I, I mean, I know this is, um, this is weird stuff, but today I can say anything, I guess, considering where we are. Chapman College, it's free-for-all. Uh, <laughs> honors to Chapman, I must say. Um, I think that what happened in the 60s with psychedelics, when it became um, a street consciousness issue, um, I think that was like a... Um, an incredible uh, psychic explosion. And that you and I and the culture is still, we are all still growing into the fallout from that. That what seems to me happened, at least for me and for the people around me at that time, was that we began to see the relative nature of reality. We saw that our storylines, who we thought we were, who our parents thought they were, what we thought we were doing, where we thought we were going, how old we thought we were, all of it was just one plane of reality. It was all overdetermined that we would learn this. I mean, uh, science was showing us that, physics and genetics. Communication and transportation were changing our concepts of time, made time be much more liquid and flexible. And I think, the, and then the, the uh, minstrels, the rock and roll movement, carried that message of more than one plane of consciousness out into the back regions of the world. I mean, at the height of, of the Soviet Union, American rock songs were a healthy part of the underground. And what I find now is that I can speak in a place, I don't say a place because they all get upset when I say that they're at that place, but I can speak in a place like X where I look out at the audience and I would say that 75 or 80 percent of them have never smoked grass, have never had any psychedelic other than, no they haven't, they've had liquor, alcohol, and cigarettes, and coffee, and sleeping pills, <laughs> diet pills, Prozac. <laughs> but, but no psychedelics. I mean, it's just bizarre, you know. And, uh, and I'll say something that in the 60s when I said it to my 15, 20-year-old audiences who were 15 to 25 who all wore white and smiled a lot, I'd say the farthest out thing I'd know and they'd all go, yeah, yeah. And now I would say that same thing since I haven't changed my material in 20 or 30 years, say the same thing in X city. And these people, I mean, these people that just don't get high, they, you just know you wouldn't go up to them and ask them for a joint. 
they're all going like that. And I think, how do they know? What happened? What possibly happened? My most delicious story about that, I'll just throw it up because I'm sure many of you heard it, was that back in the old days, everybody was very young and that came in my audiences. Now uh, it's, it's much more of a spread of ages. But then it was all a narrow range. It was interesting. I'd go to India and I'd hang out with all the old people because they all spoke the same language. Come to the West and speak to all the young people. And there was one woman in the front row who was about 70. And everybody else was 25 at the most. And everything I'd say, she'd nod. And I couldn't stand it. I mean, I'm sitting up there wondering, who is she? How does she know? She doesn't look like an acid head. What is this? What is this all about? And finally, at the end of the lecture, I kind of looked at her and smiled and like willed her over to me. She came up and she said, oh, thank you. That's just the way I thought it was. And I said, how do you know? What is it you do? that brings you into the state of consciousness where you know this. And she leaned forward very conspiratorially and she said, I crochet. But when I look at the audiences now and I see how much mainstream stuff that I do is received, I would say that what happened in the 60s really happened. And that the inertia of the habits of thought we have, I mean the inertia is reflected in the incredible way in which people are identifying with ethnic groups or religious groups or sexual groups or anything holding tight to their identity and killing to defend their identity. Those are old models. There are other models which celebrate diversity without getting trapped in it. In which your consciousness is not busy. I'm not busy being a Jew or a man or an American or old, or a psychedelicist, or a yogi, or any of it. Those are all labels. They're all like this jacket. They're stuff you put on and you take off. When I meet you, you're another being just like me. What's your trip? Who do you think you are today? We got to meet through form, but we don't have to get trapped in it. It's like I drive an MG. What do you drive? I'm an MG driver. Yeah. But dear, we're in bed. No, I'm an MG driver. You know, it's like. Now, I know that it's not um, politic yet to imply that psychedelics have turned out to play a critical role in this culture. But I basically think they have. I think they were a pseudopod starting back in the 40s and 50s through the beat period into the 60s. I think that that way, and it's, it's really interesting, I'm here in L.A. Um, giving a lecture this weekend um, on Aldous Huxley 
for his 100th birthday anniversary. And when Aldous wrote his book, Island, which I'm sure many of you have read, um, he presented a model of how a conscious community could be. And the, the education was ecologically based, and it was much more, I mean, he wrote this in, you know, in 60. And uh, now, he's, he's so timely now. And then at around 15 years old, the first 15 years, you had to become somebody. You went into somebody training. And then around 15, you went through a ritual, an initiation in the culture, in which you went through, you climbed the side of a mountain, came down the side of a mountain with other people with a lot of help, but it was a very scary initiation, a physical feat of strength and determination and all. And then you went from there into this um, meditative open temple, and you were given the moksha medicine. And the medicine put your whole somebodyness into perspective. It was something that in, reminded you of the formless root or the formlessness that is imminent within form. As the uh, Tibetan uh, Heart Sutra says, form is no other uh, than emptiness, emptiness no other than form. And this was seen as a ritual. I mean, I took psilocybin when I was 30 years old. And I realized how encrusted my entrapment in my identity had gotten. And that's why how violent was the necessity for me to break out of it that way. I'm going to um, Israel in a few weeks and meeting with people that help the Arabs and Israelis hear each other, listen to each other. And I just could imagine if they could all have a trip together. If that was part of an institutional game of, of political mediation. I mean, we're sneaking psychedelics back into our society through research like the MDMA research that's going on, through research, through the use of uh, marijuana for people with pain, uh, through uh, dying, research with the dying, and ultimately we'll do the same side of stuff we, uh, about alcoholism, about prison rehabilitation, and so on. I mean, it's obvious that psychedelics properly used to have a behavior change psychotherapeutic value. But from my point of view, that is all it is all underusing the vehicle. The potential of the vehicle is sacramentally to take you out of the cultural constructs which you are part of a conspiracy in maintaining and giving you a chance to experience once again your intimate your your innocence and
because um, of who has control of the social institutions of religion and what's happened to the Native Americans up in the Northwest and so on. How difficult it is for a society that is frightened as ours is. And when it's frightened, it holds tightly to its institutions and its structure because it's frightened of chaos. And you say, I want to take the people of your society through an experience that will take them out of organized conceptual mind back into innocence. And that is seen as a basic threat to the existing social institutions. And it's bizarre because if you look at the downfall of civilizations, you will see that it's just that panic and control and closing and constricting that is what keeps destroying civilizations. This is a very subtle and profound issue. Because there isn't, and I'm going to stop now, I'm sorry I've gone so long. There isn't, there isn't any problem, whether it's population, um, environmental issues, justice issues, resource distribution and equity. There isn't one of those social problems that can't be dealt with more profoundly through the kind of wisdom that comes through inner work. And psychedelics is clearly, if used with the right set in a supportive setting, is a brilliant way to start that inner work. And yet you and I may be witness to a time when we have something that would work and we are in a culture that rejects that possibility so thoroughly that it ends up destroying itself. Isn't that interesting? And the only place you can stand in relation to that, the two places is, one in the place of such spaciousness you just look and say how poignant that all is and see the way it all unfolds lawfully. And the other part where you're in your human heart, where it hurts like hell, and you do whatever you can to change it. And I'm inviting you to join me in cultivating those two planes of consciousness. From the human heart point of view, suffering stinks. From the pure consciousness point of view, suffering is. Suffering is like trees have leaves. Suffering is, it's all part of the process of being in form. If you're so freaked by suffering, you've got to avert your eyes. You're not free. A few months ago, I took uh, um, a sacrament that I think the, um, in the liturgy it's referred to as toadslan. And um, in this particular experience, it's a nine-minute um, nine uh, moment. <laughs> and um, 
in this particular uh, time I took it, I've taken it several times, I turned into a, a very large black woman. And I was surrounded by beings who were children all suffering, hungry, frightened, sick. And I found myself opening my arms to draw them all into myself. At the same moment I was, Paul gave a vivid description, I wasn't throwing up but I was gagging on it all. I was And at the same moment, I was in absolute ecstasy. I thought about those levels. The ecstasy of just being part of the total dance of life, not looking away from anything. The compassion that wants to take it all into yourself, because you are all of it and the ecstasy of just seeing the way formless comes into form, the dance of Shiva, the beautiful dance of the Nataraj. I honor you so much for your interest that brings you here today. I feel part of a very good extended family. Thank you very much. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.